Konigstein Road in the east to Casitas Gap in the west, and the orange curtain is descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hi everyone, I'm Brett Bradigan, editor of Ojai's magazines, the quarterly and monthly. For this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town, we reach out to perhaps the world's most distinguished cartoonist, the amazing Sergio Aragones. Sergio has had a busy quarantine at his desk inking issue after issue of his popular Grew the Wanderer series, also being honored as a featured artist in Mad Magazine's final print issue, and generally spending his days as he's always spent them, creating the insightful and funny and instantly identifiable cartoons he's been creating for the past 70 years. Hello, Sergio. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thank you, Brett. I'm here. Yeah, I've been look, really looking forward to this. You're one of my favorite people. So, <laughs> thank you. So, um, yeah, what's it been? What are you working on now? What's it been like for you over the past uh, 15 months or so during this very strange global pandemic? Well, the, the only difference is that uh, Mad Magazine ceased to be what it used to be, which was to buy articles from cartoonists and writers and stuff. But yeah. uh, because of economics and change of uh, direction, one because uh, Warner's own Mad, and they decide to have everything, all the stuff, the, the editors and everything moved to, to the West Coast. And many of the editors couldn't move because they've been doing the magazine for, I don't know, since, since the beginning, there's many years. They already have established families and jobs and everything in New York. So they couldn't move here and also they were in age of retirement. Yeah. So they, they have new editors and they moved the whole operation to the West Coast, to California. And uh, they did a few issues, and it seems like it didn't work too well. So they decide, because of the economics, to stop publishing new material. So they are publishing now reused material, published material from before. Yeah. And they started with a new numeration from, again, I think we finished Matt with the 550 issues. Wow. And then the new one started number one, two, three. And by number 17, that was the last one, and it was dedicated to me. So the whole issues oh, <laughs> with, uh... with a cover and all material, uh, and new material and all material, of course. And that was it. So Matt has stopped being a, a source of income for me. Oh, well, I'm sorry. But I still have my, my comic book group, which is I'm working now on it. Yeah, I'm doing that. Yeah, it's, uh, we did um, a couple of, uh, usually you do four issues of a comic, uh, and uh, I'm doing a crossover with Tarzan. And because of the pandemic, we couldn't publish it. It's still in, in, uh, in, in, the, in the house. Yeah. And then I did another four issues called uh, Gods Against Gru, which was a series that I started I before. I've, I've seen some panels of that. That's really, really well done, beautiful. Yeah, and um, the, the, that, uh, that usually we do 12 issues and we make a book out of it. 
Before yeah. we did, every four issues, we do what's called a graphic novel. Every four issues. And the fun part with that is that we title them alphabetically. So to know what ones were the older ones. So it was yeah. like the first one was the Gru Adventure, the Gru Bazaar, A, B, C, D, D Dynasty, and on and on until that, um, the M was Maiden. Uh, and, all, and, and then we stopped because of, we couldn't find many of the original ones. So they start publishing in book form, like 12 issues makes up a book. They do a hard cover and then a soft cover. Wow. And uh, so and how, that, many, how that, many panels in the, in the, in the comics in the per page? Or, well, well, I mean, how many total? Like, uh, what's a page uh, count? Oh, the page count, that'd be, uh, a graphic novel will be 24 times 4, well, 25 with a cover, 26 with oh, a back goodness. cover, some pages. So that's 30, 30 by 4, 120 pages, a book, okay. a graphic novel. And then the, the books are multiplied by 12 issues. So it's oh, a, they, they busy, are very that's a lot books. of drawing. Oh, well, imagine I've been doing Groove from 30 years. That's every month. Yes, yeah. just with Marvel, I did 120 issues. Wow. 10 years without, without missing a deadline. My goodness. <laughs> I mean, where, what's the inspiration process? I've seen you at work. You come up with comics like, like other people come up with breasts. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> What must be going on in your in your fertile brain to come up with? Such well, a it, it's bags. exactly uh, it's exactly what goes on with a writer or with a musician. You know, it's it's uh, for a lot of people what we do is a mystery because a lot of them don't understand how come you can come with all those ideas without realizing that we've been doing since we were kids, and that's what. The process, the, our mental process is. You write and uh, you sit there and says, oh, I want to write about this. And you start analyzing, doing research, uh, plotting, dividing. And uh, m m many, many people have different ways to, to do their, their process. Yeah. But the process is the, the, the same for any creative person, dancers. Have to go to rehearsals, learn the steps. So every every creative field or anything that is done with love and, and care involves the same process of thinking. Yeah, I, think, uh, and, I, uh, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but in your your case, you are such a, a master, and you make it look so easy. But well, but with practice, it comes easy. <laughs> yeah, but I don't can't imagine anyone else. Uh, well, uh, that's I, at the top of your field, at the top of their field, at the way that you are at theirs. Maybe like Tom Brady in football, or you know Leonard Bernstein in composing. Sure. Or, yeah, that's like virtuoso. Well, it's uh, it's uh, it's divided. First, you have to love something so much that that's what you want to do, and then you learn. Because if you put a parallel between, let's say, a piano, a piano, a, a, a pianist, and a cartoonist, well, he must love music from the beginning, because that's what he wants to do. And then, he's, he, he, if, if, if he's fortunate and his parents 
find out that he had that vocation, they will hire a, a teacher or send him to music school. So he learns. And then he starts learning from his own because he wants to, to do something special. It's the same with cartoonists. I, it, and when somebody wants to be a cartoonist and says, oh, I cannot draw a line, and says, of course, can, can you play a tune on the piano? No, well, it's the same thing. You cannot sit down on a piano and suddenly compose a, a song and play anything. Maybe some genius kids can do it, Mozart and all these people. But you have to take in consideration that many times all these people didn't have anything else to do but play the piano. There was no yeah. television or or TikTok or anything. You know? no, my, so, uh, a friend of mine, a musician, he says the only difference between Mozart and any other six-year-old who doesn't write symphonies is that Mozart's dad made him practice six hours a day. And then yeah, that, they, they practice more. Yeah, I think that's a bit of an overstatement, but there is some truth in that. Now, what, in your case, when did you know? Like, when was the first time you thought, not one, like, this is fun, I love this, I have a knack for it, and then two, like, I could make a living at this. This is a career. Well, the, the, the first thing that happens is that in the era, because I was born in, in 37, so for, for all my youth, there was no television. Uh, and uh, it, it goes back to when you watch a lot of, there was, for instance, my parents were immigrants from, from Spain, right? So when they arrived to Mexico, they all the people from the regions got together. And the people, my family is from Valencia, and there, there, there was a place called the, the reunion for them to talk about the war and the immigration. I'm talking in the, yeah. the now Spanish, in the 40s, because the now we are in Mexico. Yeah. Yes. So what happened is that they will get together, all the Valencian people, a place called La Casa Valencia, and the Valencian house. And they will get together, I don't know, once a, a few times a, a month to, to talk about their families or how to get in touch or things like that. And that house, La Casa Valencia, was in top of a movie house, of a, a little a small theater that uh, played cartoons and uh, 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 comedies yeah, and newsreels and things like that. So they will put all the kids there. They will arrive to the meeting and they put the kids on the movie. They were to their meeting and at the end they will pick us up. So we saw the same reels over and over because it was one of those movies that plays all night, yeah. all day with a loop, you know, like, like in Broadway in New York and many places. So sure. I I saw cartoons, the same ones, all in black and white, the Fleischer Brothers and Disney, from since I was a, a, a very very young a young steam, kid. Steamboat Willie. I'm yeah. I barely can hear you. I'm sorry. Oh, um, like Steamboat Willie. That was like the yes, that first, type of uh, cartoon. Yes, of course, of course. And uh, so th this is the first thing that that you that you see that you care about it, so when you arrive at home, there's no other entertainment, so I start drawing. I will take a piece of paper and start drawing those little things that I saw on the on the movies, and that was it, you know? That's when you start drawing, and then you want to do your own characters, and you go from there. Yeah, and how, then in the newspapers, well, uh, 
I arrived in Mexico in, in, in 1942. So yeah. that means... Uh, Five years old. I was, uh, yeah, I was born in 37, yeah. So that, that and it, it becomes uh, a part of, of uh, everything that you do. You go to school and uh, you pay attention in the class, but you keep drawing because th that's a lot of fun to do. Yeah. That's something that uh, the, the kids around you like also. Sure. They, 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 they are, <laughs> that's how I made my first, my first peso once is that I remember that uh, in, in those times in the school was about memorizing, yeah. you know, they, they, they didn't really knew how to take care of the kids. So the mathematical was singing the, the multiplication table, you know, na, 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 and the homeworks was go home and write this chapter about the history or about geography or about whatever it was teaching. So you'll go home and copy. You develop your writing and you develop a memory about what you learn in class. And then they, they always, every chapter has little drawings and my, my colleagues didn't know how to draw. So I charged like five centavos to make their drawings, even changing styles, you know, for, yeah. for, to, to be so I remember I, I collected a few pesos and I bought a toy and that was it, it was, you, that you realized that this this was the this was your path that's really yeah cool. and uh, you something that when you arrive home the only thing you do is your homework and then that's it there's no other entertainment except drawing my mother then to help the, to to pay for the rent and things like that because uh, they were just arrived from from the war. She was a she she was raised on a nonary, you know, like the majority. <laughs> she was not going. She didn't go to a regular school. She went to a a convent type of thing, and she was very good embroidering. That's all they did. So she taught embroidering classes, oh. and that's how we survived. My father was looking for jobs. My, and my mother was embroidering. So many times when I got tired of uh, drawing, I would make take one of the wooden loops and start embroidering like my mother did. So oh. parallel of drawing, I was embroidering, you know, making little rabbits and little things. Oh, oh. now to to, to spend the time. You know. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your father. Now he was in the film business. He was a director? No, 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 no. What happened is that uh, from Spain, we went to France. You know, okay. so... So, well, just so people know, there was a lot going on then. This was like a training ground for World War II and long-range bombers and, and the communist proxies with the Republicans in Spain and Generalissimo Franco coming up from the, from the south and... It was a terrible, terrible time, and it was just brutal. This was, this was uh, the iron heel of fascism just coming down all across Spain. And, you know, the Germans were on the side of Franco. The Soviets were on the side of the Republicans and the Americans. You know, Hemingway and all the rest came over. John Dos Passos with the Lincoln Brigade. 
Like it was, uh, you know, the capture, the attention of the world had been captured by this terrible conflict. So um, your parents were, they, they knew they had to get their family out of there. Is that pretty uh, Yeah, we had to. Well, uh, no, my family, my, I, I left with my, mo- my mother and I left. We went to across the border. We went to France. My father and uh, and her brother still stayed to fight against Franco. So I I I was a, a few months old. So we arrived to France, and uh, a few a few years later, like in nineteen, uh, I don't know when he went to to France. Was my bro- my sister was born nineteen forty, and my father almost have arrived in France in thirty nine. So he stayed there for two years fighting, and then when the cause was lost, because Hitler uh, helped Franco, yeah. and that's when Guernica happened and all that, I mean, the cause was lost. So we went to France, and we hide there because uh, the, the conflict with the, with the Germans in France, we were in a section called Vichy. Yeah, Vichy, France was basically controlled by Germany, or Nazi sympathizers. Yeah, they, they were uh, with um, Marshal Petain, who had been a hero in the First World War. So they, they, he was uh, thinking that the best thing for France was to capitulate and, and let the Germans um, be the bosses. And uh, so they have a section of France who was uh, called the Vichy section. And that's where we were, who was very dangerous for Jewish people, for refugees, for gypsies, for uh, gay people, everything that was not conform to Hitler, they were in uh, in a peril of their lives. Yeah. So when the cause was lost in Spain, my father came to France and uh, we stayed there until it was impossible because the French couldn't uh, help anymore except them, their own people because they couldn't take care of all the refugees that ha- have arrived from from Spain and all that. Yeah, so crossing from there the we Pyrenees, took right? there. People were arriving on foot, walking across the Pyrenees. Yes, or by buses and whatever they could, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so from France, when it became very difficult, it was 1941. And in 42, we we took a ship called the Nyasa. My father was there. My sister was uh, very young. She was born in 40. So we left and uh, we went to Mexico, who was the only country that accepted refugees, because in, in those times the United States were so afraid of communism that anybody that come refugees from the war, they didn't accept it. Complete ships with Jewish people oh and refugees, they, they were sent stories. away back to, 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 the to their camps. Yeah. So um, they couldn't cope with so many people because they were refugees from every country, you know, ships arrived so. So it was impossible. So the only country that accepted was Mexico. That's what I had a debt with Mexico that I will never be able to repay. They were the country that accepted all the Spanish refugees and Jewish people and said, here, welcome, this is your home. So we arrived to Mexico and uh, and uh, my mother started teaching embroidery. I, I started going to school and my father started trying to get any job he could. And uh, the, the thing is that one day he reads in the newspaper that they needed Spanish-looking extras for a movie. 
that was about the Mexican independence from the Spaniards. And to separate the armies, they needed Spanish-looking people. So my father applied, and he was chosen because he looked very Spaniard. So he arrived home very happy because he said, hey, they paid me a lot for doing nothing, just be dressed like a soldier. That's yeah. it. Yeah. From 1821, so was this the, the independence period? 1821? Yeah, the, the, no, a little, uh, yeah, with the Morelos and Hidalgo and all that. Oh. So the movie was called La Virgen que formó una patria, the virgin that formed a country. And uh, so after that, he liked the business, so he became an extra, then he became an actor. And of course, every time they, they needed kids extras, they would send my sister and I to work on the movies. So that was it. Then he became, because he had been uh, uh, very involved with the socialist thing and the workers' movements and things. He helped the Mexican actors form the Actors Guild with actors like Jorge Negrete and Cantinflas to yeah. form the Mexican Actors Guild. So he was and, like an uh, organizer. Yes, and with them. And uh, they formed it, and he became uh, uh, what's called a, a delegate, actor's delegate. And his job was to make sure that they will cut in time, that they were paid for extra hours, that they were fed, that they were treated decently when they were in location, things like that, which is what a union does to yeah. protect the membership. So he, he was there, and then he was acting, and then he realized that the production end of it was where there was more more interesting job. So he became an assistant production people. Then he became a... I'm production manager, then he became a, um, a associate producer, and then he ended his life as a producer. Okay, so you spent no, a lot of... Go ahead, I'm sorry. He was not uh, on the artistic end of it. He was on the production end yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, not to... not produ Producing does require a lot of art. I've heard somebody describe it as being like a lion tamer. That you got to get people... You know, you got to get the clowns in the car and you got to get the lion, you know, it's like your lead, your your star to to do his lines no, that, and show up on time. And you got to go the get the money. Yeah. The production job, the, the executive producers or the line producers, their, their job is to bring the movie on the budget. So they have to arrange what saves money for the company. So they figured it out that if they are paying a, an actor the most, they have to shoot all his scenes fast. Yeah. So they don't have to pay him more. And then at the same time, make sure that if they have a location that costs money because they have to get hotels and transportation and everything, that everything does done at the same time before they pay the other guys. So it's just making these tables so they shoot from this to that, to pay this, to pay that, to save money. Yeah, to get the so trains to a, run on time. Yeah, and horrible, horrible job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, that, uh, and I grew up on that. I grew up uh, uh, in the studios, the school boss would leave me at the studio. I would play in the studios. My, my father, uh, when and they finished, I did my homework over there. 
I play on the set. I will get to the, uh, the, the places uh, with the costumes and I will get my cowboy guns and hats and I will oh, play right. on the cowboy set. And then after I did my homework and then when the job was done and my father and I, we were, we went home for dinner. You know, I will go with my father back to the house and that was it. So I spent a lot of time in the studios playing uh, games with my imagination, you know. So I was yeah. always involved in, in that creation part of it. Well, just being in that context, it must have seemed like make-believe was your world. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and, and also, it, it, uh, I realized how movies were made from the beginning. So it was, it's like if your father owns a grocery store, the last thing you want to do is not force it to work on a grocery store. So the same thing with the movies. I didn't like any part of it. To me, an actor was a guy who had to arrive very early, sit there to put their makeup for hours, then sit on the the set in the dark, just memorizing lines for the director, call you for a little scene, and then go back and sit in there until you finish the whole day (laughs) and says, that's the last thing I want to be is an actor. Yeah, like a meat puppet. Went, like a meat puppet. Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> and 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 uh, th- then the romantic scenes were not even romantic. Nothing was real. Yeah. And then when I had some free time, my father will put me to work at the studio, and I work, for instance, on the in the editing room, just rewinding uh, te- film and picking it up from the folder and putting this and that. And I says, I don't want to be in the editing room. Things are horrible. So every part of the industry I didn't like at all. So there was no way I, got, I was going to become a, 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 part, of, a part of it. Well, wh- uh, well, you did actually to some degree, and we'll talk about that. But you decided on, on architecture. Was that because you're parents influenced you because they knew it was a better way to make a living? I mean, you knew at an early age you wanted to be an artist. I hear you say. No, not really. I just like to draw. I didn't, never thought of it as a career. Even uh, when you got it, a peso was, from your school chums, from your schoolmates? No, that, that, that was uh, something that it was so easy to do. And uh, and also, don't forget that while, while you, you are growing up, in those lands, there's no school of cartooning. There's no way to meet cartoonists. Yeah. It's, it's another country. I'm in Mexico. And in, in many other countries, it's not like the United States, who had that tradition of the comic strips, that they have how to draw. You could send a drawing of a dog, and then they, you, you could become a cartoonist by following this cartooning schools by correspondence. Yeah, I remember that those ads been, in the back of the magazines. Yeah, and that has been always there. So a lot of the kids who like to draw, they could understand that they could become a cartoonist. We never had of that. I just love the cartoonists and the work that they did, and I love cartooning, but I never thought of it as a career until much later. Meanwhile, I just was a, a kid drawing in school, drawing on the school papers, drawing for the, for the class guys. And uh, so... When you are the son of a refugee, no matter from what nationality, you have to prove to the country that you left or that the country you arrived that emigration works, that your kids are going to be better 
because now they are in a free country, because they have an opportunity. And I'm talking on the 30s and the 40s. It's a completely different time now. Yeah. But then is what happened with the Mexican immigrants that come to work here. They will work as slaves, get badly paid, mistreated, uh, the horrible thing, just for one reason, because they want to kid, they go to school and become free and learn and, and be better than they were. Same thing with the Spanish refugees, same thing with the Jewish people. They want to improve. That's what immigration is all about. Well, this is so, a country of immigrants, America. Absolutely. That's it. Yeah. So when when uh, my father arrived in Mexico, the only thing he wanted was the best for me. And what was the best? College. So, and what was the best part? In the 40s, the important thing was to be an engineer. That's what it was, the top of the, of the thing. Engineers were the people who build the world. Yes. So you have. So I had to go. Yes. Heroic. So I had to be. Yes. So I had to be an engineer. So I finished. Uh, um, I I I never thought about anything else that I was going to go to college and become an engineer. You know. And uh, meanwhile, I go to high school. By then, high school, I start to get a little more aware of life and everything, and do sports. I start looking at girls. I start. Uh, going out by myself, it was just uh, a great, great thing. High school, which we call in Mexico a preparatory school, which is also geared to what career you're going to be. So my preparatory school was in engineering. So I was doing the cartoons for the, the school newspaper. So it was like a mural newspaper because we in those times there was a thing called. The uh, mimeograph, who was yeah. a machine that printed that in strange smelling fluid that they used in those machines. Yeah, it was blue, printed in blue, like, and it was awful. So we have it in a mural thing. They, they will put the articles in this box and they put the cartoons. And one of the girls who was the editor said, I, Why don't you sell these cartoons? They're pretty good. And I never thought that they were good at all. So one day she took them off to a magazine called Haha, and uh, 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 the next day I'm in class, and when the school was over, she said, hey guys, let's go, we go, let's have lunch and play bowling, and uh, it's on Sergio's. I said, what are you talking about? I don't have any money for that. Said, well, yes, you have, you, you just sold some cartoons. Oh, so I never saw the money because it was spent on, on sandwiches and bowling yeah. with, with, my, with my classmates. And, uh, but you did but get to see your, ma your cartoons in Haha -Ha magazine, is it, it? That's correct, yeah. Suddenly I said, wait a minute. I I, I am, uh, uh, I have been also, been, uh, there was another cartoon that appeared, but I don't call them professional because I didn't get paid. It was just a, a group of, people who love to draw and we put a magazine called Sick, uh, S-I-C, like, uh, like in, uh, in the, Latin. in the, right, in Latin saying, uh, as is, you know. Uh, so that was the name of the, of the magazine and we did, I don't know, a couple of issues. Like a fanzine. Yeah, type of thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was 1954. But the, the first time I saw my cartoons, it was in 1954 in the moment I became really a professional cartoonist. So I went 
all through high school. And then when I entered engineering, I went to college. That was in 1955. I go to college, and about a month later, I go up to my dad and says, Papa, I don't understand a word of what they're saying. <laughs> Nothing. I was zero. Oh, that my father almost had an apoplexy attack over there, you know. And uh, so he, I suggest, well, can I go to architecture school? Because I, I, I have some friends there, and I've been spending some hours there because I couldn't take engineering. So I like it. There's a lot of drawing and a lot of uh, fantastic history of things. Oh, and it says, well, yeah. if it's college, it's fine. So in 56, I entered architectural college. And that was a completely different facet of my life because I went to college, I enjoyed it. I was doing uh, publishing cartoons. I was in a rowing team, doing sports. I have a motorcycle and uh, it was a completely different life. Uh, you're still so, in Mexico City at this point. Then. Yeah, in Mexico City, and um, I, uh, I, the, the thing with that theater, not because I wanted to be an actor, is because many of my friends were actors, and as soon as that class was over, I would go to pick them up at the theater because they were in the theater group of architecture, and I sat there until they finished rehearsing, and then we'd go out and go play pool or whatever, and uh, usually when you're there. And they said, Sergio, come and, and, and read for this guy who's not show up. Or, or this girl that didn't show up. So you go upstairs and you read. So eventually the, the, there's a part that you have to play. And then you, I became sort of like an actor for, for the architectural theater group. We did uh, Mexican plays. And we did uh, uh, The Skin of Our Teeth, the Thornton Wild. Well, Thornton Wild, yes, our... Yeah, our Thatcher I play, school uh, student. Yeah, I did. Uh, in the first act, I was a dinosaur, and the second, I was a lifeguard. The third, I was Moses. And uh, this is a fascinating play. You know, yeah. and, uh, I will go. I still remember the the line from Moses. Many nights they say, Pelayadio, And in the beginning, the earth was dark. <laughs> So it was. It was entertaining. It was fun. Yeah. Theater. Plus, uh, the the theater girls are very cute. That's where all the that was that's it. where all the cute, smart girls end up is in theater. Well, that's exactly true because in those times, dating in Mexico was a different thing. Yeah. And talking, and you you were with a girl, and you need you had to go with a chaperone. <laughs> it's so different. And then you had to be your your fiance. You know? And that was like serious stuff, you know. I mean, and religious and shit like that. You know, but never mind, you know. So the, the the girls that were actresses, they had to stay very late for the rehearsals. They were more free. They smoked cigarettes. It was a, a completely different life. So it was a lot more fun. A lot more. So fun. that was a, the the good attraction for it. You, yeah. know? you found your tribe. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that was the time also that the beatniks were coming in the United States. So we were kind of fake beatniks. I had a beer and I smoked a pipe and I wore sandals. And, uh, oh my God, I was on a beard. Oh, and oh, you must turtleneck. Have cut, cut quite a figure. 
Yeah, yeah, that was it. It was a fake, you know, and I was totally <laughs> different than that. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember um, Roberto Bolano. He wrote that really wonderful book, 2666, but he wrote an earlier book, which I'm blanking on the name now. I'll put it up in the notes where it's about a group of friends, art school friends, theater school friends in Mexico City in like the early 70s. And I think the, that neighborhood Roma featured in there prominently, which I think you lived in Roma, did you not? Yeah, La Colonia Roma, that was a very nice neighborhood. Uh, and uh, I live in the Condesa, which was next to it. So Roma was a very old uh, uh, neighborhood in Mexico, it was very nice. But that, that, that scene was in a, in a place called Coyoacan, where Scott Diego Rivera had his house, and uh, that was sort of like where all the beatniks really were, you know. It was uh, the coffee houses. Jazz was the thing. We'll go there to listen to jazz. You know. It and was great. And I was, or smoke your pipe. And, uh, yeah, and uh, I had a weekly page in a magazine called Mañana Magazine. Oh. And, uh, and uh, that, that I was by then a, a professional cartoonist. And, and were, uh, were you getting known? Did you... Uh... No, 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 no. You you are not known until until you publish books, until you you work for an important magazine. I have a weekly page, but that was it. You know, I mean, they they look at the cartoons, but there's other cartoonists. And in Mexico at that time, that was my problem. It was politically oriented. So I would say that ninety percent of the cartoons published were political, yeah. and I didn't do political because I was a foreigner in Mexico. And in Spain, I couldn't do it either after because I was a Mexican. And in the States, I couldn't because I, it's one or two. There's no in between, you know, so. So yeah. it was. Uh, and it limits I you. Never, yeah, you're going to yeah, be one yeah. side or the other, and then that's it for the rest of your career. Yeah, that's it. Totally. And I was totally dedicated at that humor to make people laugh. Yeah. And pantomime, because I have been directed from the beginning to understand cartoons from France and from Germany in every place that didn't have words. The cartooning in Europe times were uh, uh, geared for every country. No matter where you live, if you were a, a German cartoonist, you'll sell also to French or to Spanish or everything because Europe was much smaller. So you could have a more of an international appeal as a cartoonist. And many of the cartoons were without words. And when I was a kid, and well, uh, starting from uh, from high school, I will go with other guys who were cartoonists. Among them, one who was very popular called Rius, one of the best cartoonists ever appeared from Mexico. And we'll go to hotels to look at their stands where they sell the newspapers, mostly international newspapers and magazines, to look at the cartoons. And uh, that was a, a thing that we did religiously to, to see who I was published in other places. Yeah, you know when the issues were coming out and to go to the newsstand to be the... Yeah, yeah, we'll go there and and and, uh, and comics never were an attraction to me except some... They, there were very few American comics that arrived. Donald Duck, Little Lulu, um, superheroes were not that popular then. Uh, the adventure, uh, there was a thing called uh, Black Hawks, and Batman, things like that. Sure. But uh, there was no no interest whatsoever. 
because there were no humor comics. There were children comics, little Lulu, or there were uh, teenager comics later about Archie and things, but humor, humor. Ah, that was not it. So I was not never, uh, I wrote my own adventures stories, but for me, not for anybody. Uh-huh. And uh, so comics were not on the, on the, on the future, except when I came to the States later. And why, uh, why did you move to America? What was the, what prompted that? That was a, must have been a big change. It sounded like you had a pretty good life for yourself in Mexico City. Well, uh, not economically, because you didn't make any money. You know, I was paid uh, for a page. I was paid uh, 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 100 pesos, which is at, uh, $8. Uh, so that being for, like a quarter. Yeah, that'll be just for cartoons and uh, I mean to to buy coffee and to take the bus and to take a girl out for lunch, but not for anything else. You know, not to raise and, a family uh, on and buy a house and get a mortgage. Oh no, that forget it. That was not no. it. So uh, my father knew that a cartoonist didn't make that much money. So he that's the last thing I wanted for me. So I had to go to, to college even. Though I knew I wasn't going to be an architect, because I knew that by then that I was that I was a cartoonist. Yeah. You know, so uh, I, I, the, 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 there were many things that happened. For instance, when Marcel Marceau came to Mexico, the great pantomimist. Yeah. Pantomime. Oh my God, that was such an experience watching him in the theater, and. Um, the university wanted the theater group to meet him, so I was. The, I took the groups because I, I, spoke, I spoke French. That was my first language, and uh, so I, I went there to translate. And one of the people who was with uh, helping Marcel Marceau to do his pantomime was Alejandro Jodorowsky, one uh, an excellent mime, a great movie director who directed. El Topo, the Holy Band, and he was um, just an amazing individual. And when he stayed in Mexico, he was from Chile, Alejandro Jodorowsky. And he opened a pantomime school. So some of my friends uh, joined to become mimes. So I figured it out that that will be a great apprenticeship for my pantomime cartoons. Because I could learn all those movements without having to watch somebody doing them because I could do it myself. So I approached Khodorovsky and said, I would want to join the, the class, but not, not to be a mime, but to apply it to my cartoons. And Khodorovsky was a cartoon lover. He had, uh, uh, he became one of the top, uh, uh, besides being a top mime, a top writer, and top movie director, he became a top comic book writer he writes all the, the great movies, uh, the, the great uh, comics in, in in France with uh, Moebius, the cartoonist, uh, Jean Giraud. So he became sort of like the top writer of comics in France after. What a, incredible wow, what a career. Oh, please. That many of you, you have to Google him and you, you'll be amazed. I'll put that up in the notes. Khodorovsky, J.O., yeah, the Rose. Name is familiar. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, and uh, and uh, he's sort of like uh, international celebrity with with the movies. 
And uh, so I learned pantomime, which was fantastic. And I did theater with him. And uh, what I did is I presented the pantomimes with Marcel Marceau. What Khodorovsky did was called the sign that was written, for instance, The Magician. And then he will go, show the title, and then Marcel Marceau will do the pantomime of The Magician. Oh, but wow. I figured it out that if instead of writing it, I'll draw it. So I'll go in the stage with white face and everything, and in a big glass I will draw a magician. And then oh, the, the mimes will do the magician. So everything was pantomime. Well, so the I, I idea that. That, you, that these art forms are, it, one informs the other like that, it's brilliant. I, I, just, I think that's, yeah, that's the all. essence of art is making connections between two things that don't seem... Yeah, but yes, that's really... That yeah, so that's great. what I did with the theater. But by then, I was already decided to go to the United States because that's where I have found out through a magazine called The Writer's Digest. Oh, yes. And Writer's Digest was a magazine that uh, told writers what magazines were buying what. Science fiction, and adventure... Yes, and the dates and when they will buy it. And in the back, they have a whole section about cartooning. So he said, uh, um, uh, 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 Gags and Doll, is the guy, uh, the Dolly search magazine is paying so much. They need two cartoons a month, and they pay that. We're buying now, or we are not buying now, because we have too many. So I figured out, and I look at the prices, and I say, oh, my God. So <laughs> this is incredible. So I sold everything I had. Many of my colleagues in architectural school, by then I had repeated a few years. I was like a student, a professional student. I just <laughs> keep going to college just because I liked the, 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 the environment, the theater. Yeah, yeah. so the, the, I figured out, well, that's time, so I left. And uh, first I went to, to Los Angeles, then came back, and then I figured it out, yes, that's what I want to do. I went to New York. By bus, and uh, you went to, to New no. York by bus from Mexico City. Yeah, that was nineteen sixty-two. Nineteen sixty-two. Wow, that's and been uh, quite a bus ride. It was because what I did when we ar I arrived to the states was get out in whatever town the the, the bus stopped. I took my luggage. I put it on the station, and for the day I visit the town. And then at night I will take the bus and sleep on the bus. And then in the morning I will get out of the bus, visit whatever town I was visited, which mostly was the south, all the south going up. Yeah. Then Washington, I remember I, I stayed there and I visited a lot of things. And then the next day I will take uh, the bus again, <laughs> and I arrive to New York. So when I arrive to New York, I arrived with 20 bucks. 20 That's all I had. Did you have I a portfolio? Know Did you have yes, a, of course. So. And I didn't know anybody. So I put a portfolio and the luggage on the, on the, on the uh, bus station. And then I went to the village. As a beatnik, that's what we like. Yes, you know, that's like Grand, Grand Central the Station for was, beatniks, yeah. Yeah, so I arrived to the, to the village and it was not what I thought it was. Because during the day, the village is full of Italian people, little old ladies going to the market, babies playing, 
uh, and I said, who are the beatniks? Where yeah. is all this thing with a bearded people and uh, semi-nude uh, ladies uh, going on, you know? <laughs> and uh, so but at night, they start coming up, you know, and that was it. It was great. Yeah. You know, you could talk to any guy and uh, anybody. It was great. So uh, the night arrives, I don't have any money, so I slept on a bench. Goodness. And uh, nobody bothered me. Uh, uh, nobody stole my ja- my 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 coat, anything. So that was it. And uh, went back to the bus station, put some money on the uh, on that on the thing, and uh, went back to the village. And uh, it's a it's a long story, but that yeah. was the beginning. How did you? Uh, how did you? This is where. Did you find Mad Magazine, or did they find you? No, no, no. That, that not not yet. That, then. What happened is that I I I, the, 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 I got up. I go to the village after I paid for my luggage again, and uh, I I had now my portfolio with me because I was going to to visit some magazines. But I didn't know where to go or anything. So uh, uh, I was walking in the village and there was a coffee house called the Flamenco Coffee House. Mm. And I looking in the window and there's a, a guy playing the guitar in flamenco. There was those little little restaurant bars or just coffee houses that had like 10 tables, you know, very little narrow in the village. And there was some group of Mexicans asking the guy to play La Malagueña. Oh, La Malagueña. Yeah, I know that song. But the, the one from Lecuona, that's the guy who knew her. He didn't know the Mexican Malagueña. And the guys were telling, no, no, that's not the Malagueña. We want the Malagueña. So I, they were going to cause some trouble. So I went to the owner. And in my very basic English, I said, I know the Malagueña. Let me sing it for them so they can stop. And the guy said, yeah, sure. So I went there and I told the guitarist just to, to accompany me with whatever he wanted. So I start singing La Malagueña, and they start cheering, yeah, yeah. And so I sang La Malagueña, and they applauded. And, uh, and a riot and, uh, was averted. What? Yes. So they left, and I asked the guy if I could get a job there. And uh, he said, well, you have to, to sing Spanish songs. And I didn't know any. Except and Malagueña. I said, but... Uh, that is Mexican, uh, the Mexico and Malagueña, Malaga. Anybody who was uh, born in, in Malaga is a Malagueña. Yeah. And there's a region in, in Cuba also that. Uh, oh, I the, thought it was the South. Called the Malagueña. I thought that was in Valencia, Malaga. Yeah, no, yeah, but that, that, that was the Lecuona Malagueña, the Mexican Malagueña. Que bonitos ojos tienen debajo de esas dos esas. So it's a different song. Yeah. So I sang it to them, and then what happened is that they said, "Well, I told them that I knew some Spanish poetry from Garcia Lorca." Oh, Lorca! And I said, "I can do that." I said, "Sure, go ahead." So I sat there and I told the guy to play me some flamenco music, and I started reciting Garcia Lorca. I knew three poems by heart. So I started, uh, by then there was oh, oh, not that many, not much audience, but uh, there were they were a few tables full. And uh, I recited Garcia Lorca, they applauded every time I finished. 
Oh, such and beautiful when, poetry. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah, and the and sad story Agrini, of him getting shot by the Sure, fascist, by the, by the fascists. Yeah. So when, when I finished my three poems, I look at the guy and the owner says, continue. You know, you have to do more, but I didn't know any more poetry. So in the spell of the moment, I asked the guy if they spoke Spanish and nobody did. So I start reciting Mexican lyrics from Mexican songs, <laughs> the ranchera songs, faking the gypsy rhythm of Spanish poetry. So I fake it. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I start reciting Mexican songs like they were Spanish poetry by Garcia Lorca. And it worked. It worked. <laughs> I finished my hour. They passed the, the bucket and I got my first money there. Oh, wow. And uh, that was it. Uh, when I left, I left to do, to get, uh, to put more, more money on the center. And the guy came and says, where are you staying? And she says, I don't have a place to stay. He says, well, you can stay here down in the basement. So I went, I run all the way to downtown, 42nd Street. And I run back to the village in a in a in a jacket. Well, that's quite a ways. Yeah, that's got to be yes. several miles. Yes, a couple at least. So I because that was in the fifties, and villages in, in the in the tents. So that's forty blocks. So I I I, uh, I go there and uh, I stay overnight. At the, in their basement. So uh, next morning, very early, I did my ablutions over there in the, in the basin and um, got my portfolio. And I realized that I'm locked in in the store. Oh, no. So I didn't have a telephone or to call anybody or anything. I didn't know anybody. So I just sat there at the window looking at people and that's how I spent my first, my second day in New York, sitting watching people walking by in front of the window. <laughs> and about six o'clock in the evening, I see the owner coming and see me going, oh my God, he forgot about me. <laughs> so he let me go out, oh my God. So I, I went to a, a, a walk out and asked him if there was a bookstore around. And fortunately there was. And with the money that I made the previous night, I bought a little book of poetry by Garcia Lorca in Spanish and in English. It was a, a double thing. And that was like my Bible. I started working in the coffee house. Yeah. And that was it. That was the beginning. And yeah, well, in a party. Yeah, well, then it happens that you go to parties, you meet people. I, I met a cartoonist who was starting. And he told me how the whole thing, how you want to go. And slowly you, you, you start figuring out where to go. I went to magazines and they didn't like what I did. And a lot of them says, this is too crazy. You should go to mad. But mad, I knew it by heart. I knew that they didn't publish what I do. They oh, had really? satires of movies and theater oh, and all yeah. that. Alfred E. Newman. But Sure, but no, 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 no cartoons like I did. But I had to go there to, to meet the people. And I went there, meet Antonio Proyas, 
who was a Cuban cartoonist who did the Spy vs. Spy. Yeah. And we talked Spanish, and I asked him, please, why don't you introduce me to the editors? And he says, well, they're all in Spanish, of course. You have to introduce yourself. I don't speak English either. So, <laughs> so that was the beginning. They looked my cartoons, and they bought a couple of pages. And that was how it started, yeah. And that was 1962? That was 1962, yeah. Wow. That's and I started selling on pages, ideas for the, for the covers. And then I, I sold a lot. Says, uh, well, you have enough. Why don't you go back to Mexico and come back in a year? We'll buy again. I didn't want to leave. So I thought about the marginal, putting cartoons on the borders. Yeah. And they they love the idea. They pay incredibly well. And they says, well, th this I found later. And that they says, <laughs> we'll publish them until he runs out of ideas. Is that it? Well, and no, here's the 60, magazine 60 ended years before. Later. Yeah. They ended yeah, before you ran out of ideas. That's right. <laughs> Steve Lewis and oh my God. So, um, so that us, was basically... Yeah, sorry. Uh, I was going to ask you, tell us what, what uh, about Bill Gaines. I know he's famous for taking the whole staff to Jamaica to convince someone not to cancel their subscription. He had one subscriber in Jamaica. Now, well, you said that, you didn't go on that trip. You No, that was the, the, the first trip. I didn't go because that's when I, I got married for the first time. That was, okay. I went to, I had to go to, I had made pretty good money. So I went uh, back to California. So I missed the trip. But what happened is that the, the trip was, uh, uh, he had decided that every year he was going to invite the whole staff to a trip. So that was not Jamaica, that was Suriname. Oh, okay. Well, even so, more obscure, yeah. Yeah, it was a small place, Suriname. And uh, he, he asked the secretary, do we, do we sell any migrants in, uh, in Suriname? And that's like, she says, yeah, we have one subscriber. He just canceled his subscription. So we laugh. they laughed. And uh, so when they went there, uh, they figured it out that it'd be a good joke to go to this guy's house. So they did. They rented the jeeps and all the stuff arrived. There were about 10 people then. The, 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 he, he invited always the, the writers, the artists, the art director and the staff, you know, the, the editors and the publisher. So he arrived and knocked and says, so-and-so is here. He says, yeah. So can we talk to him, the mother of it? And this young man comes out and Bill Gaines goes, says, I'm Bill Gaines, and this is the staff of Matt, this is uh, Jaffe, this is Nick Nick, the editor. And I, like, I just couldn't believe it. And says, we come here to beg you to to resubscribe again because we need your, your subscription to make a living, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the guy was amazed, of course. They, they, uh, they, they, they gave him the free subscription. Yeah. And, uh, that was it, you know. He was a great guy. So from now on, every year, Matt has taken a mad trip, all paid, fantastic. We we get when the magazine did well, we got more cash money, and and then what you do is you, you share the room with another cartoonist or a writer, so it becomes like a family. So yeah. we went to from from sixty four that I started. Uh, I missed a couple of other trips because I, I I went to Europe for a couple of years by myself. But uh, with my wife, and uh, then uh, 
the, the trips we went to African safaris, we went to Tahiti, we went so many times to Europe, Scandinavia, Morocco, uh, name it, and we went to Florida, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, and the one to Mexico, I organized. I took all the guys, and my mother made paella for all the guys. And uh, I took them to a bullfight so they could fight little bulls. It was a, a great, great experience. Yeah, I probably should, I should probably cut this out because my writers and uh, photographers are going to hear this and expect the same without realizing <laughs> that uh, this isn't really a very lucrative business. I'm just uh, happy to not have to get a real job. That's my yeah, intent. no, no, <laughs> yeah, no. That that was exceptional, and uh, of course, it was attached to the doctor. We we share rooms. I I, I had rooms share rooms with uh, Al Jaffe, Don Martin. Um, everybody, you know, all the all the top guys. Well, these are these and, are years when Mad Magazine was at a, the height of cultural influence. I think there's oh, not yes. a not a ten to fourteen year old smart uh, boy and girls in America that didn't have a big stack of Mad Magazines in their treehouse. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, it was it was uh, it was uh, a phenomenon, yeah, and I phenomenon. was very lucky that I was a participant of it. Well, you were more than a participant. You were an influencer. You were uh, you were a celebrity. Well, you are a celebrity. That's really uh, to, well, make, to make that level of uh, of fame and and uh, to have earned the respect of so many hundreds of millions of people worldwide with your pen, with your cartooning. It's phenomenal. Well, it it, be, it because the, the magazine sold by the millions at a certain point, but it was always on the hundreds of thousands. So, the, what it is is what happened is exactly the same phenomenon that happened to me. I had my my idols, and when I arrived to New York, and I I went to the National Cartoonist Society, and became a member because I was already established cartoonist over there. They I met all my idols. I met Rube Goldberg, who was the guy with the invention. Oh my goodness, yes, that's so. And uh, I, he invited me to visit his studio. I met Otto Soglo, who did the Little King, and I was a super fan of it. So I met all the people. I met um, uh, and I met him, you know. <laughs> and I was a fan of all these people because I have grown up with their work in the newspapers and the on the. Mm -hmm. So and suddenly through the years. They become your friends, Will Eisner, everybody who was who, and and not, they become your friends. Not only the, you are, uh, they are my idols. They became my friends. It was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Is meeting all these colleagues. I know I've told you this story before, but I'll tell it again for the benefit of the listeners that I was listening to NPR reporting from Comic Con, and they were talking about the rise of these Hispanic graphic novelists and they had three of them on the broadcast and they asked them well who are your who's your influence who's your influence who who is who do you aspire to be who's your role model and all three of them in unison said Sergio Aragones and I just <laughs> laughed so hard I was very oh, touched by that very touched uh, it, it's a great feeling because it, it's a solitary career I mean you see it at home all day long, thinking ideas and drawing. 
So when when you when you find out you go to the conventions, the comic cons, and things like that, and then you meet your fans, then you realize who you're working for. Yeah, you know, it, it is just a, a great great uh, feeling to belong to this uh, small society of of people who do the same thing that you do and that you know so well because you know that the parents didn't want them to be cartoonists yes. because they wanted them to be doctors <laughs> or because uh, and how hard it was for them to start and how they have the same idols that had yeah. changed through generations. So it's such a parallel life doing exactly what you do and liking what, what you do. And that is a, a great, great feeling, knowing that you belong to this exclusive group yes. that, uh, that people like what you do. You know? And uh, yeah. now with, uh, with the new tel- computers and things like that, you, 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 you have a, a new division. It's not only the fans, but now it's a, it's a group that is the collectors. You know, they, they collect your work. And so it's hard to know when somebody goes to a convention asking for an autograph if he really likes your work or he just wants to put it in a book and and put it next to the one that they got from a baseball player, you know. Yeah. So well, it's a, it's a strange. Yeah, I I was also um you know we talk a lot about history. I that's one of my enthusiasms and I, I believe it is yours too, but I'm really fascinated about when you were going to school, what history was taught you versus what we were taught? For example, you know, we hear about the valiant defenders at the Alamo and, you know, remember the Alamo and how Texas got its independence and all. But but people forget the reason why Mexico was trying to subdue the settlers in Texas is because Mexico had had outlawed slavery and these were all slave owners yeah that that's like, one of the points yeah but don't I, forget also the time the time the united states on those times like many other europe's like other countries uh, japan and uh, and uh, europe they have a thing called manifest destiny yes that they were the kings of the world and they have to conquer more more land and be bigger and all that that was the common acceptance on that period from every country, you know, and well, manifest America. Well. Yeah, that term, I think it was a newspaper editor that coined that term in like the 1840s. But that was right when, you know, the James Polk. Uh, yeah, like that's trying what to, Polk's yeah, war. Yeah, that's what uh, led directly to the Mexican-American War. And it was yeah, interesting because, uh, yeah, we talked about the... Um, they don't teach you about the Patricio Brigade in America, but I'll give you a little context and then you can take it over from there. But they, you know, had Ireland had the potato famine and all so many. There were like eight million people in Ireland and four million of them emigrated to America. A lot of these young men had no other choice but to get drafted into the army because that was, you know, three meals in a cot. So. They ended up, these young Catholic boys ended up on the, on the border of Mexico before the shooting started. And the Mexicans are 
riding up and down along the riverbank and shouting at them, you know, those people are heathens. We're the we're the good Catholics. Your mother would want you to be over here with us because, you know, you're you're fighting against the Pope and everything else. So like a bunch of them deserted the American line and went over to the Mexican line. Well, she and, just told the story. That's it. Yeah. Well, didn't they? There was a heroic battle in which they bravely defended one of the one of the high points, right? I don't, I can't remember the details now. Well, but, what happened is that as soon as the, the the Irish people landed, the armies were there, the army, the American army. But don't forget, that's very difficult for me to talk about history to the United States. That United States has been a great country for me. Oh, I'm not, has I'm been not a career I'm just, I had, yeah. but we have to take in consideration that all the countries have a nasty story yes. and it had nothing to do with uh, with uh, with what that the precepts of the countries are you know i mean they are established certain canons that if everybody follow them they will be the, the the greatest country ever yeah the united states but history had done a lot of crappy things imagine the spaniards with the inquisition and the conquest of, of the Spanish, so they did more more bad than any other country that you can talk about. Yeah. But the United States had his own pretty bad things that happened to them through history. Yeah, and one nobody, of them about nobody that, has clean hands in this. That's right. So what happened with the Irish arrived as soon as they landed, they told them if they wanted to become Americans, they have to join the army, and so they did. And when the the the, the Mexico had uh, in, in, invaded uh, the Mexico with reasons of expansionism more than anything else with the, the territories of Texas and, and California and part of New Mexico and all that. When they send the troops to, to Mexico, you know, through Veracruz, right now there's already been a lot of bad things uh, happen are you hear me? Yes, I, I can hear yeah, you. That many things had had happened because Mexico had a, a the biggest thief that ever existed as a president called Santa Ana. Yeah, and Santa Ana wanted all all money. That's all he he cared about it. And uh, when the people were in Texas, they wanted Texas to to expand, you know. And uh, so they they Mexico couldn't afford because he had had a war of independence and didn't have any armies to, to really talk about it. They were using weapons that they used uh, with the French in first invasion in the 1930s. So yeah. there was not a, a big prowess. When they arrived to Mexico City, the, 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 the Marines had, uh, attacked a military school that was in Chapultepec. And the majority of people have run away and the only people who were defending us, they were cadets. So they were they were teenagers, all of them sixteen years old and seventeen years old. That was a big big win of the house of Moctezuma, you know. I mean, of, of, and in the same battle when they were fighting in Churubusco, that that San Patricio battalion, who was as I you said and it's true, they were all Irish, that they were very Catholic and they realized that American soldiers were raping and doing all the kinds of things that happened in every war, yes. not only with Americans, but with everybody, you know. And uh, so they, they figured it out 
that they were uh, they, they, they had to fight for the right causes so they changed bands and they started fighting for the, for the Mexicans like in, in, in Churubusco yeah. and uh, and uh, so they were of course uh, the, the, the Americans were a big majority and uh, I don't remember the, the, the name of the John Riley was the name of the of the, the leader of the of San the Patricio Brigade yeah, the, the the commander of the San Patricio. So they were they fought a lot, and they were captured, and many were killed. And then when they took uh, the the castle, they figured that uh, well, as soon as the American flag flies, we'll we'll shoot you all, and they hanged them all, and they branded, um, uh, they put the brands. It, it was horrible, a horrible thing. So. For, for the Americans, they don't know anything about the San Patricio Battalion because to them, uh, it's, it's just a group of deserters. I remember helping my daughter once of doing her, her work, her work for school. And, uh, I wonder, I was reading the American history book and it was just a little paragraph during the Mexican War, uh, uh, uh the San Patricio Battalion, a gang of, uh, Irish rebels. And traitors were caught and summarily executed. That's all he said. That's all. But in Mexico, they are our heroes. They have monuments. We have a day to celebrate them. They help our cause, and they are the biggest heroes over there. You know, they have yeah. monuments and things. Yeah, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Yeah, and and uh, don't forget that all, 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 always the victors write the history. Well, the Mexican-American you know, so, War fascinates me because so many <clears throat> of our also, generals got their start there. The Civil War generals, uh, Robert E. Lee yeah, and no, no. Grant and Longstreet and uh, Jefferson yeah, Davis. It, yeah, yeah. When 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 that that, that war that invasion the Mexican uh, that, what you call the Mexican um, Mexican American War in Mexico is not called like that. It's called the 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 intervention of the United States in Mexico. We don't call it the Mexican-American War. It's the Mexican intervention. Yeah, the American right. intervention. And they went all the way to Mexico, and they were deciding, okay, let's let's take, why you just take Texas and the North? Let's take the whole country. We already took the capital. Why don't we take the whole country? And, and then they figured it out. And this is true. It says, no, because they are not white. They are Indians. And we cannot have a whole state or a whole a whole republic with 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 Indian people. Yeah. They have to be white people. Yeah. So that was the reason they didn't conquer Mexico because of, of of the white yeah, solution. They didn't, they didn't want to. And also because government. Europe Europe didn't like the a bit that they were there because they had their own interests, of course. Yeah, as the so French they they just had to later. leave. Yeah. They took uh, what Santana had sold illegally because he was a prisoner when he signed the, yeah. the, the sale of Texas and that. <laughs> so that was also, not only that, the United States pay for it as a compensation. They pay money for it. You know, I mean, it was so b bad thing that it's no good to talk about it because it happened and it was a long time ago. Yeah. You know? Well, uh, and uh, a... it was the most embarrassing part that ever happened. No, not the most, but there was other bad yeah, things. But in those times, well, we've got, our, we've got our comeuppance here. You know, we've got 
Vietnam and Afghanistan, and we have our own uh, crosses well, to bear. But I do yeah, like uh, Porfirio Diaz, who said, uh, "Poor Mexico, so far from God, and yet so, so close, close to the United <laughs> States." <laughs> so yeah, and, uh, Porfirio Diaz, who was a dictator who stayed there thirty some years and everything, yeah. uh, and he did a lot of good for um, for Mexico in one way and a lot of not bad because he didn't help that the native of Mexicans at all. You know, they were in the same poverty that they were. But he's, he made the, the, all the railroads and a lot of industry and a lot of culture and avenues and all kinds of things. But the country didn't really benefit that much from his years of tyranny. Then he, he was exiled to, to France and that's where he died of that. But that, the, 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 the part is that late, lately, like in the 1850s, I'm not talking, and this is after the, 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 the invasion of the, of the Mexico, the Estados Unidos. We call them, uh, we call, we don't call America because America is a continent. So to, to us and to the rest of the world, the, uh, the, the country that we live on, and, uh, and uh, it, it's called Los Estados Unidos. The United States, yes, you know, and uh, so the, the, what happened is that after the war, like twenty years after, they, they Santana was just a, a, the worst tyrant ever. He, every time he did something wrong, he would escape and find oh refuge in Cuba or in Colombia. Oh, he ended up place. in uh, New York City as a shipping agent. In, in yeah. New York City, uh, scheming the whole time to get to take back control of of Mexico. Yeah, well, he did in in fifty three. He uh, he he, you know, because he was supported by all the rich people and by the United States. Sure. He became president again because they needed, and you have to read about it. It's called the Gutsen Purchase. Oh the, yeah, the the, the, the border was defined by the second river, not by the, by the big river that they established that as the border. For, from, from the other side, the border wasn't established because they didn't know where, where Mexico and the United States or they, the territory they have taken. So there was a ranch over there called uh, Mesilla, Little Chair Mesilla. So they call, of course, they, uh, um, uh, Santana was president. Then they put him again there. And the first thing he did is sold that, that ranch to, to the United States in, in 1953 for, I don't know, for $10 million or something. Yeah. And well, then, of course, as soon as that was signed, he ran away again to hide on the, <laughs> on Colombia. Because his own people were out to get him. Yeah, because that, that, that land was used for the, what was called in, in those times, the Transcontinental Railroad. Yeah, or the Southern Pacific Railroad. Yeah, so that's, they built uh, it much yeah. years later. But then that, 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 the border was established, you know, cutting, you know, for, uh, because it was a, the, a very man, man, ma, mountain range over there. So they, they went all the way down where the Mesilla Ranch was, and that was flat. So they make there the, the border. So Santana sold that land too. After That's, that was just so criminal, everything. Yeah. But there were people. Sense. There were people doing business deals. 
That's what it uh, was. And in California, there was a guy, I don't remember his name, but he was not even part of that government. He had his own army and he was taking part. Oh, they called them the, uh, filibusters or filibusteros. These guys that yeah, were set were, up private armies and go conquer territories, like the William Walker who conquered Nicaragua. Yeah, it's nuts. They're just uh, uh, adventurers. Farmont, Farmont, Fremont, Fremont. I think oh, that was John, is John C. Fremont. It's an yeah. American expedition where he basically yeah. took California <laughs> without any authorization. Nobody told him to t conquer uh, Alta California. He just just did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, well, but th that history, you know, is yeah. like uh, like uh, domains from France. In, 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 in. And uh, the people who, when they, the pretext that the, the, the United States in those times was using was that the, 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 the Native Americans were unprotected, so they wanted to protect them. You know? Oh, my goodness. Yes, no, no, uh, concern trolls, that's what they call them. Like, oh, those poor natives, we, we have to go protect them from. Um, yeah, it was a very strange era. Yeah. But um, uh, today, if you, if you open a door and says, anybody who's unhappy with this country can come to the United States, I'd say that 90% of the rest of the world will come here. Uh, that's absolutely true. I think it's because, because uh, uh, we just have this idea. I think there's a lot to be said for bankruptcy laws in this country and other things. There's no stigma to, to failing like there would be in France or Germany. If you start a business and it doesn't work, you got to carry that around with you for a long time. Here, people fail all the time and start over and fail often and fail fast until they figure it out. So there's this up, this sense that you can start over here. You can start fresh. Yeah, but for, for instance, a bank in the United States fails. Everybody jumps in it and takes, they take all the parts. Yeah. For instance, in Japan, a bank fails, and all the other banks support him, so he doesn't go out of business. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's a it's, big difference. If you read the, the books about the business in Japan, it's an eye opener. Yeah. Well, it's an the eye way opener. that uh, the Americans came in and re my dad spent a few years in Japan during and after World War Two. And he said that the American business consultants that came in after they really, you know, took the parts of the Japanese culture and put them together with the American parts. And for a while there, we thought America or Japan and Germany were basically going to take over the world's economy, that they were dictating terms on interest rates and, and uh, production levels and everything for automobiles and everything it was really uh you know the the turnaround that took place really impressive mm. yeah I, so, I barely can hear you senor okay so it's i would just uh want to talk a little bit about pancho villa because he's like one of the most fascinating characters who ever lived and we don't <laughs> learn we don't learn much about him here for example you know if you asked americans about pancho villa that he started 400 schools 400 schools 
they wouldn't they wouldn't know that people don't understand the dynamics going on <clears throat> in the Mexican Revolution in 1910 to 1915 or something 1916 those mm. those e those years where you know the Pancho Villa and who was the guy in the south Zapata Zapata yeah Zapata uh, was on the on the south uh, in the center uh, and uh, he was um, a more pure um, that was before but um that was long long before that was against the spaniards mm. the the zapata and and villa were trying to establish the the uh, a, a, a government a logical government that helped the people yes but that failed because uh, they they weren't prepared for that there's always a lot of things called uh, created interest from the people that are, they have, they, they support certain causes, you know. So it's a, it's very difficult for very wealthy people to to give away their land, you know, because yes. that has always <clears throat> been like that, and that cannot ever change. Uh, and uh, the the people who get screwed up are the poor people. And Zapata was for the land, and Villa was helping, and to the point that when the, they triumph. And uh, and uh, uh, I, right now I, again the memory just goes crazy. Uh, when uh, when Pantavia, uh, the Americans uh, felt it necessary to invade because he like took over some of the copper mines in the north of Mexico. Or, there was some pretext that they used to set up a whole army to go after Pancho Villa. This was when Woodrow Wilson was the president. First time aerial warfare in the U.S. They were dropping bombs by hand out of the planes trying to get Pancho Villa's guerrillas. Well, that, that was that, that was re really, they didn't want to get him at all. He, they wanted to send the American armies to practice to Europe, for Europe. Yeah. So there was a, an exercise they never found Pancho Villa. They never even saw him because yeah. they really they weren't that really interested to, to, to get him. They 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 were practicing. They were practicing for the war. Yeah, it was like a very expensive extended war exercise. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, Villa was a defender of what he believed, and uh, every time the the, the powers change. You know that they uh, they were screwed up. You know that Huerta took power and that was it. I mean, to get rid of them. So they were uh, an army trying to help, and every time they did something, they they were they changed the government and the people were against them. You know? Yeah, the law and, of unintended and, uh, consequences. Yes, I mean it's is that you believe in something, you want to do it, and suddenly the people who you put on there. They are not the people that you think they are there. You know, I mean, they they promise, and when they arrive there, they just don't deliver. Yeah, or it just because, gets too complicated. It's just yeah, no, no, very it's, difficult it's, to lead. When people arrive to to power or to become a president, you you have people beyond that helps you. You cannot become president just because people like your face. They, you have to have money for the campaigns. So the people who put the money for the campaigns, now when you are president, now you owe them. And whatever they need from you, you will give. 
Yeah, because they'll get rid of and you. And that's it. And yeah. that happens in every country and in every power. I want to be president. Sure, we help you. Here, here, there's some money. You become president. Now, you help us. We help you. You do this. Yeah. And that's quid, it. Quid pro quo. Yeah. And that happens every place. Yeah. It is logical. Yeah. Nobody does anything just because. Unfortunately, I'm afraid you're right. Well, unfortunately, the of, church does it because they they need the the church needs the people, so they do whatever is good to to get the people. I mean, but uh, it's uh, everybody has their, their own things, you know. And that's yeah. what when you do cartoons, you you look at it and, and then you try to try to make, to make sense it of humorous, it so people don't cry all day long. Yeah, to find uh, that's it's a important. Uh, it's like alchemy. You take this great tragedy of humanity and flip it around and find a gag or a joke. And uh, you know, so Orwell said, "Every joke is a tiny revolution." Every joke is a tiny revolution. I love that quote. Well, speaking of, of the past, how about the future? What do you think uh, the cartooning graphic novels as an art form? What do you see happening? Because you go to a lot of these, the Rubin Awards and uh, Comic-Con and these places. Yeah. What do you, what do you see there that, that uh, well, is of interest? I, I, I go to a lot of, of things unrelated. What happened is, like in everything else, Changes come with 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 advancing technology and modern. That's what changes the things. Things continue. Poetry will continue. Literature will continue. Cartooning will continue. Not the same way it has always been because paper is going to disappear and computers are taking over. This is exactly what happened when before everything was a horse and yeah. everyone, everybody went to work by horse. Suddenly, somebody invents the car, and uh, so what happened is nobody went to work by horse. Everybody went to work by car. But the horse is still there. To this day, I have spent a lot of money for my daughter to learn how to ride and <laughs> buying salt for the horse and paying for the maintenance. This horse for rodeos, this horse, horses for the races, for name it. The, the, the horse is still very much alive. But yeah. not as a not as a necessity to go to work. Yeah. It is a pleasure. So the the best horses they survive. The the the, the races. The everything that related to horses. There's a lot of people who are still maintaining all that. Same thing with cartooning. Same thing with literature. The masses are not going to use literature the way we know it. But people with the, with the, they like quality of things. They will continue reading books, not not paper books, because as we know, the, all the bookstores, libraries are disappearing, and paper is disappearing. So probably there won't be comic books because of the expense. Before a comic book cost thirteen cents, now they cost five dollars, six dollars for the same thing. But probably they won't be monthly comics. At all, first yeah. because it's a lot of paper, but they, they'll be on the computer. Yeah, you know, people will draw on already. the computer, and then you see it on the computer. But they will be comics because it's a lot of fun. People will like to draw, and uh, they are better artists now than they were ever. 
they, they have incredible amount of, of very good cartoonists and they draw in the computer yeah are there any and cartoonists that you think of like right now that you uh, really admire maybe some of the younger ones i can put them up put some names up in the notes for people to check out well uh i i in humor there there's the people who still do the comic strips but i don't i am uh, not that much keen on watching computer because yeah. i still work on paper and uh to entertain myself i don't watch television i watch all movies all things that i already know because they make me company and i'm yeah. comfortably with it you know i don't like where everything is violence now i mean the uh, bad not a, violence. not a game of thrones fan nothing please i wouldn't even nothing nothing that games i don't know how to play a game yeah. If I want to play a game, I play a game of chess with a friend or or a, a cross world puzzle. Yeah. But a game that I go to waste my time. I tell people I have I need time to think. I go outside this beautiful garden. I look at the birds. I sit by the table, and I write, and I think, and I enjoy that. And then when I come to draw. I watch all things to make the company. Oh, you I know, love that. documentaries. I watch documentaries. I, I think uh, everything that is entertaining without me having to talk back to it. But uh, I don't watch any of the new shows at all. I, I wouldn't even go there. Oh, they are great. Sure. A lot of things are great. That's true. That's too I much. Remember, There's too I, much stuff I, out I, there. It's uh, overload. Yeah. It, I remember sex, of course. I'm 83 years old. <laughs> so it's a lot of things that they are very enjoyable then that I still enjoy now. Yeah. The, old, the silent movies, I don't watch except when I want to relax a little. But I watch all, all movies that they're good old movies, when movies were well made. Now I cannot follow any new movie because of the cuts. Try to watch a new movie, a modern movie, and count the cuts. You cannot uh, arrive to the count of four. Yeah, like a Guy you, Ritchie movie where the quick cuts every few seconds, it just flashes. That's right. It's, you cannot arrive to four. You one, 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 two, three, one, one, two, one, two, three, four, one, one, yeah. one, two, one, two, three. They, they are directors who were they started doing commercials. I mean, oh, 30 seconds, they have to have 20,000 things, you know? Yeah, I, th I so believe they, you're right. And this is just uh, part of the culture now. We uh, Attention deficit disorder society. Nobody has any yeah. attention spans for anything anymore. Well, not only that, there's so much there for them, for the young generation. They, they, if they don't understand anything, like if they're reading mad, they read the article and, and they arrive to my section and I've been so careful to do a cartoon so they can think. They cannot get it just looking at it. They have to think that why yeah. this is happening. But you think they will spend the time thinking why it's happening? No. They go to the next one or they turn the page because there's so much to give. Same thing with the television. What's the most popular thing that has millions and millions and millions of viewers? 
And I'm not talking about everybody. I'm talking about millions and millions of people. It's a thing called TikTok. Yeah, TikTok they is are like 20 the seconds or less. Asinine things. And they love it. They enjoy these, thing, these things. One after the other, the other. I watch many times what people are watching and they just can't believe it. Yes, I'm old. And yes, I'm very sad on that always. I'm very comfortable. I'm very comfortable working with my pens and my inks and, and, and that's it. You know, it, uh, I'm, I'm not going to change to computers. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I have well, I think computers will change for you, Sergio. You're of an eminent. You're an eminence in the, in the world. No, 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 no. We we do what we like, and people like it, and that's what makes us what we are. But we're yeah. still fans. I consider myself a fan of, of cartoonists. I, I I I like other work and say, oh my god, look at how good his artwork is. And uh, I, I I complain about the usage of of computers. Some of them know how to use them to save time, which is amazing. Computers yeah. are incredible. They, yeah. they save time, but when you misuse it, there's new cartoonists who instead of draw, they just put the same scene and change a little face, a little mouth, a little leg, and they think that's a drawing. But because nobody cares, they will continue doing it. Sure. So, no, so no I do my way, and I'm very glad. I hope I have a few more years to oh, continue yeah. doing it. Well, I hope we. Yeah. Uh, I hope I can catch up with you soon and have a cup of coffee. I, I miss. Oh, uh, that's great. I miss seeing you. I miss seeing people. And now we're coming to the end of this pandemic, and it start things starting to feel back to normal. But until I can make you some conchonita de pibil at our one of our office parties. Uh, oh yes, that was uh, always fun. And every every time I go to your parties, all that you're invited gets that sensation of people. Yeah, so well, it's just a bunch of hobos around a trash can fire with forty-fives uh, <laughs> of paper wrapped. Yeah, we, we it's fun. It's a good. I like uh, I like I like people. I like the people I work with. They're very creative and kind of kind of some of them are kind of nuts, but so am I. Yeah, and also we have to apologize to our listeners. That we went to talk about things we like so much. Yeah. Probably they, they, they don't particularly care about. Oh, I don't part. know. I'm, I'm finding that people seem to enjoy the, the diversions and the, the segues and the, and the, when we get off track, it's just like a conversation between two old friends and people like. That. Yeah, that's the best part of it. Yeah, because I, I have my coffee here. I'm, I'm drinking my coffee. For yeah, it's like almost sitting across from you and catching up. Yeah. But we will. So I'm still working right now. I'm still writing Gru. I still have about five projects that I'm doing. Right now it's very popular doing a thing. It's called uh, Variant Covers. So oh, when okay. they sell a comic book, the same comic book, they put four different covers so that collectors of those characters will buy them all. Oh, that's besides great. Marketing. Besides your own fans, they would like the cover because you draw it. So one comic is said to sell one, they sell four of the same one. That's so I'm doing too. a lot of variant covers for all the companies. So it's a lot of work. I, I still work harder now with the pandemic than before. That's a, that's a, that's great to hear. Yeah. All right, yeah. all right, senor. It's been really wonderful catching up with you, and uh, I hope uh, we get we can. Clap eyes on sure. each other in person soon. 
Yeah, so I, I suggest you to read about uh, the Gadsden Purchase. You know, oh, that, yeah, the um, Gadsden Purchase, 1853. That Santa Ana, that, that in 1853. You have to read about that guy. Yeah. Because it, it's just incredible. Santana was the biggest. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah. And the French, oh, the, the one thing that he was talking about history, about the War of the Cake. Are you familiar with it? No. La Guerra de los Pasteles. It's called the, the Cake War. That was before the, the, invasion, the invasion of the French. The first invasion, you know, of the French that happened in the... Uh, 18, how was that? 18, before that, then, before um, uh, uh, Maximilian. Yeah, the first after one was Napoleon and before Napoleon III. Yeah, the, it was in, in the, the early Bourbons, 30s. The Bourbon monarchy still. In the early 30s, yeah. Mexico, uh, the French invaded Mexico to protect a, a, guy, a guy who had a, 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 a cake um, a bakery. <laughs> because some Mexican soldiers went there and ate the cakes and caused a disturbance and left without paying. <laughs> so they had complained to France, and France sent armed ships to Veracruz. As, and and it was a war. Over somebody not paying a, a baker for his cakes. Yes, it was called the, the War of the Cakes. You have to get into that too. Yeah, I'm going to put sensational. it notes. There's so much out there. The the first French invasion, the the War of the Cakes. I don't know if you can find that anywhere. I didn't. But, I didn't know. I didn't even know anything about that. But I'll put up a link oh. in the notes for sure. Yeah, because if you if you go if you find that there, then you will realize all the, the other French invasions because they have a lot of interest in 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 Mexico, yeah. and uh, that's what uh, they also sent Maximilian later. But if you if you follow it, it's it's the beginning. Yeah, it's crazy. Hey, there we go again, speaking about, about history. <laughs> well, <laughs> Sorry about that. It's fascinating. All right, Sorry sir. So, um, okay, senor. Thank you. We'll You've talk. Been very generous with your time, and I uh, hope to see you around the campus here very soon. You will. You will. You will. All right, sir. Bye. Okay, amigo. Just thinking out loud. Podcast listeners have come to tolerate the intense and winding conversations that we share with you on Ojai Talk of the Town. We appreciate your patience and hope it's been rewarded. It's very different to spend an hour or longer listening to two people having a conversation than it is to scroll through Facebook or Instagram or any of the other media obsessions that we have these days. As we talked about with Sergio, podcasts are a relatively new form of media. While many compare them to radio, a few radio shows feature two guests talking at great length without diversions or interruptions. Not Howard Stern, not England's famous John Peel, and certainly not Rush Limbaugh. Possibly only Art Bell, who many remember from late night radio on long road trips with his three-hour monologues about UFOs and various and sundry conspiracy theories, compares. I appreciate you sticking with me for this long as we fine-tune this loose and easy format. As always, if you have any ideas about a topic or special guest, please drop a DM in our Ojai Quarterly Instagram or on Facebook. Well, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.